Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, <clears throat> sorry, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. And the second reading is from Romans chapter 11 on page 1139. Romans 11, starting at verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments! and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him, and through him, and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, 
but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is James. Um, what to say about myself? Ooh, I didn't prepare this bit. Um, I became a Christian at the age of five in a place not dissimilar to this. I was playing with my Duplo, and God was doing some amazing things in the room. People were spending time with him, people were getting healed, miracles were happening. And I thought as a five-year-old, you know what? This God seems worth following. And since then, I've grown up loving all things creative, so I love building friendships, I love playing guitar, I love painting, walking, cooking, and photography. And I think one of the things I'm particularly passionate about and one of the reasons I do the job that I do here, looking after some music staff and some pastoral staff, is that I love to help people hear God's voice and follow him. I love to help people hear God's voice and follow him. But enough about me. So um, I thought we'd start with a very simple question. It's early on a Sunday morning, and some of us have had to drag ourselves here. Um, I got home at 10.30 last night from France, so I'm feeling a little bit sleepy. Um, my question for you is, what does starting the day well look like for you? What motivates you to get up in the morning, if anything at all? What kind of day do you look forward to? Take a moment to think. I quite like asking the why question. Why do what we do? Why get up in the morning? Why? And perhaps that's the creative side of me, the side that says, I don't want to settle for just doing the same thing over and over again. But I, I look at this passage and I'm kind of like, this Romans 11 to 12 passage, I'm thinking, why? Why worship? 
And this, this is a very popular passage for churches to talk about how we worship, how we serve God, how every area of our lives can be an act of honoring him, of adoring him, of walking with him. And that's great. But sometimes we miss the key ingredient. We miss the why. Why we worship. Why be a Christian. Why live for Jesus. And Paul makes it quite clear in the Romans 12 passage. It's in view of his mercy. It's in view of God's mercy. Mercy comes first. Mercy is at the start. Mercy is the key ingredient. It is the framework for our living. So I think my hope is for this morning that actually we get a little bit more entranced is the wrong word, but absorbed, fixated on, in love with the mercy of God and a God who is merciful. Because we are welcomed by the full, extravagant embrace of God first, and everything else follows. So what is mercy? Words like mercy sometimes seem a little bit abstract. And um, I found one of the helpful things to think about when it comes to mercy and grace is that mercy in a sense is not getting what we do deserve and grace is getting what we don't deserve. But in this passage, there's a little bit more flesh to it than that. The, the word mercy can also be translated as compassion, pity, favor. It's the kind of mercy that Um, is emotional, it's empathetic, it's raw, but it's also an incredibly demonstrative thing. It's a, I'm going to get down on my knees, get in the dirt, and lift you up from the mire thing. I'm going to go through this mess with you. Throughout the Old Testament, which is the first half of the Bible, and we had one of our readings from there this morning, the word mercy can often be found to mean enduring love. Uh, I'm not going anywhere kind of love. A love that you can rely on no matter what. And in uh, Micah 6, verse 8, it talks about mercy in, 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 in a collection of three things, also with doing justice and walking humbly. So it's not like it's a, a visceral head thing. It's not a weak thing, but mercy goes hand in hand with justice and walking with humility. And we see this kind of hands-on mercy most clearly in Jesus. So when Jesus is nailed at the cross, taking on the judgment and punishment that we deserve, he does not say, I'm going to rise from the dead and come back and get you. When he's being taunted when he's being flogged, when those 12-inch nails go into his hands, he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. He shows mercy, and it's not reluctant. Richard Foster says this, Golgotha, that place of the cross, came as a result of God's great desire to forgive, not his reluctance. And I'll give you an example of, of, of sometimes how we miss the fact that mercy comes first. 
one of the most famous stories in the Bible is Adam and Eve. And sometimes we read it, when we read it, we pick up on these key things. We see Adam and Eve screw up. God sees that Adam and Eve screw up, and he banishes them from the garden, from all the good things of creation, and he withdraws somewhat from them. But actually, the story does not start with God punishing screw-ups. Our story, as far as the Christian faith is concerned, starts with God, out of his mercy, creating a beautiful world and calling it good. Creating humankind and calling us good. Entrusting us with the stewardship of this goodness. And yes, Adam and Eve do then screw up and mess up and they hide from God because they're ashamed. But God does not abandon them. He's there in the garden. He calls Adam and Eve out from their hiding, gives them clothes, restores their dignity, and then goes with them as they leave the garden to face up to the brokenness and sin in the world together. So God is mercy, and out of his enduring, healing, restoring, compassionate, active mercy, we can truly live. Mercy comes first. And I would suggest there's no life worthwhile living without mercy, and that God cannot go one second without mercy. My first key point is that God's mercy is endless. And we see in the Bible, there's a book at the end of the Bible called Revelation, which is about what's yet to come, and it's very poetic. And one of the pictures that is used is of a lamb on a throne. Now, the lamb in Scripture is one of the metaphors to describe Jesus. It's a depiction of his mercy, of sacrifice, of standing in the place of another to take on the full blow of pain, death, and justice, mercy and justice together. And this merciful one is enthroned forever and his mercy is eternally celebrated. So not only did God give his mercy in a full-blown wallop creation at the start, but also we see his mercy in eternity. There's mercy at the start, there's mercy in eternity. And earlier, I think it was Tim who said the words, God's mercy are new every morning. God's mercy is new every morning. And that comes from a book called Lamentations, which is all about lament. It's about crying out to God, God, why is this going on? What is going on in the midst of all this terrible stuff? Yet, his mercies are new every morning. There is mercy at the start. There's mercy in eternity. And there's mercy today in the in-between. Simon Ponsby says, our story is mercy first to last. And when we look at Romans 11, we can see that we can never be, God can never be indebted to our actions. And his paths are beyond tracing out. And he's, he's deep and rich and full of wisdom and understanding. And from him and through him and for him are all things. So we can't 
outdo mercy. We can't run from mercy. We can't improve on it. We cannot graduate from it. We cannot simply study it. Our very living and breathing is a result of mercy. Up at the back of church, there's the steeple, the tower. And in the tower is a, is a clock that is wound up on a regular basis with all these little detailed cogs. And I'm very grateful for the team who do that because it reminds me when I'm running late for a meeting. Um, but if you imagine a heavy clock with a big church bell, imagine taking out a key cog from that clock. What will happen is the time will stop being told and the whole thing will cave in on itself and probably the bell would fall through the floor into that porch. Everything stops ticking and life falls through the floor when we don't have mercy. And endless mercy is also a bit like um, when you're on Facebook around the time of an election and you're fed up of all those political posts that keep coming up and you just want to scroll through them, get to the fun photos of someone's holiday and not deal with the politics. But you can't. Mercy goes on and on and on and on. And whether you're a Christian or not this morning, um, I know it's sometimes easy to think, do I really need God? You know, I kind of live a good life as it is. But what if we are just a little bit broken? A little bit hurting? Even just a smidgen of anger in our hearts? What do we do with that grief, with our loss, with our confusion? What if we're none of these things, but God still has more? Is there really nothing in my life that I wouldn't change if I could? Is there really nothing in my life that I wouldn't love to be forgiven of, to be free of, no pain or chain, Or what about a joy I'd love to step into? What if God's very good nature implores him to tend to our shortfalls and to shower us with goodness? Mercy is totally of his doing and nothing of ours. And when we look at the end of Romans and we see that magnificent picture of God, that he is a God of wisdom and his wisdom is so rich, what life can we live better off without him? And can I say, particularly to those of us this morning who feel like failures, your failure need not be fatal. There's no one from this room, in this room, who's disqualified from mercy. And when you look at the great heroes in scripture, every one of them is, or has been at some point, a bit of a screw up. Someone who's messed up. But God doesn't see them as a screw up. Their failure isn't fatal. You've got David, a man who's after God's heart and yet commits adultery. Moses, who leads a whole nation out of slavery and is a murderer. Paul, the great teacher who we've heard this morning, who started out as a persecutor. Tax collectors, greedy people, doubters, outcasts, untouchables. We all need mercy.
So how do we experience this mercy? How is it possible to fall in love with this mercy? I'm not saying that we need to each spend three hours a day meditating on the cross, sing Amazing Grace a few times, and then life will kind of sort itself out. Religious routine does not, in and of itself, fix everything. Mercy moves us to whole life transformation. And this, knowing God's mercy and experiencing his mercy is a whole life adventure. And God helps us to navigate this adventure and he constantly signposts us to his mercy even when we don't see it. So recently I met up with um, a friend, very good friend, remarkable young man, remarkable young man. I admire him greatly. And we had a delicious Indian meal. I had a mouth-watering paneer, so good. And as he filled me in on his news, it was quite clear that his personal insecurities had been wreaking havoc in his life. He spoke of making unhealthy comparisons with others and how his own sense of unworthiness was leading to destructive behavior in his relationships. I was struck by his Ennis frustration. Here's a guy who wants to be healed, who wants to learn and wants to grow. It's a great starting point. So we began to spitball some ideas as to how to help him get out that spiral out of that rut. Some of them were good, um, but to be honest, my heart was breaking for my friend. Here's a chap who's going through hell. And no half-baked good idea of mine was really going to help. So lost is how to encourage him, I fell silent. I didn't know what to say. And I hoped that my quiet listening would be enough. But I don't know if you've been in those conversations when someone falls quiet, and you're sort of worried about what they're thinking. And he was looking at me like, oh, are you judging me? Is everything okay? He just said, James, what are you thinking? Oh, crumbs. I don't know. I do not know what to say. Then it hit me. Mate, mate. Do you know that you're blessed? He looked shocked. I said, do you know that you're blessed? What do you mean? He asked me. Well, I think God wants you to know that you're blessed. At this point, I'm starting to freak out because he's going through hell, and all I've got is one of these pithy Christian words that we use to try and encourage someone. You're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed. It hadn't occurred to me that Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And right there and then, my very good friend started to cry. And we started to talk about how the good people in his life are not there to expose his lack of worth. His friends are a gift to him, and he is a gift to them. Their friendship is an expression of God's mercy, how much God loves them all. They are all of great worth in God's eyes, and they value each other immensely too. In their friendship, they experience mercy. Now, loving mercy isn't easy. 
And what God chooses to call of worth, who he chooses to call worthy, is not always what I would choose to call worthy or who I would choose to call worthy. So why on earth go with his choices? The fact of the matter is that any any life that's without a sense of worth is just going to head for self-destruction. So if I do not see myself with the same worth that God sees me, I will end up looking at my faults in some way or other, big or small, and perpetually be punishing myself. Or I'll be lashing out to others. Or I'll be hiding from myself. Or forever trying to prove myself. But knowing God's mercy changes everything. We don't need to live with any one of those pains, punishment, rejection, lashing out, hiding, fighting for approval. And we had Psalm 103 this morning, which is a really beautiful psalm, isn't it? Really beautiful psalm. What I hadn't noticed until recently is there's a comparison there, hidden in there, that Moses knew God's ways and Israel knew God's works. Moses knew God's ways, and Israel knew God's works. You see, Israel had made a big mistake in that bit of their history. They'd opted out of divine relational privileges. They've stepped away from God, and they've left that role of approaching God up to Moses. And from that point onwards, what we see in the Bible is that kings and prophets and priests in funny robes get to talk to God and everyone else relies on them. The people of God only became interested in what God could do for them, not who he was to them. And I don't want to make that similar mistake I don't want to be a person who gets freed from slavery, who witnesses, sees part, eats bread that's fallen from the sky, or follows a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, and then turns down the opportunity to know my God personally. I want to be like Moses, who, as the Bible tells us, was able to speak to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So finally, living mercy. This great call in in Romans 12 to, in view of God's mercy, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice implies that we get to live by mercy. I may have said this when I spoke a couple of weeks ago, but it's not as if our lives are like sitting in an exam hall. Imagine this is an exam hall. You've got rows and rows of chairs and tables, papers on them, Pens out, they're ready. So glad I don't have to do that anymore. And it's not as if our lives are the exam room and God is the distant adjudicator who just wanders up and down a little bit, keeping his distance, but making sure that everyone plays by the rules. That's not the God we worship. He's also not the moderator who simply brings the passing grade down so that we can all make the cut. He's not at the 
quality assurance end of a business, just, in, just making sure that each product is sellable, that lives up to the brand value. He is the proud father who pins our childlike doodles on his fridge door. And in this passage in Romans 12, one of the words that's used is Euriston, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Euriston. In fact, I think in the version we read, it read as acceptable. But if you break that word down, it literally translates as well, good, and to please. I mean, it's great that we, get to live, we can live a life that's fully acceptable to God. That's amazing. But that's only the half of it. God takes delight in our lives. He looks on with pride and affection. That Greek word, euriston, can also be found to denote good news, nobility, and pleasure in the New Testament. One other time it appears that really stands out is when God the Father speaks to his son, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And that's at a point where Jesus hasn't yet healed anyone as far as we know. He hasn't spoken his amazing teaching words. He hasn't performed many miracles. He hasn't gone on the cross. He hasn't risen from the dead. Before Jesus does any of that cool stuff, his father is pleased with him. You see, God, does not, God loves us before we find success. And he loves us even when we screw up. He loves us before we do anything at all. God is not out to get you. He's not in the habit of cast, throwing stones. He takes delight in you, full stop. But here's the nub of it. There's no God-pleasing life without mercy. You can't find it any other way. And the practical implication of this is that actually we don't follow God to gain him. We don't come here on a Sunday morning to sing songs and then hope that he will just turn up. The, re- the reality is, is that God is already present. And if you're currently in a season where God feels absent, he, by the power of his Holy Spirit, can do something to shift that perspective today. It also means that we don't follow God to gain his approval. We worship God because we already have his approval. We do not worship God for some self-improvement, expecting our lifestyle choices to fix us, or religious styles to springboard us into glory. We worship God because he is our healer, he is our teacher, he is our restorer. We do not worship to pick a fight. We worship because God is victorious. We do not worship to gain gifts like listed in that passage. We worship because he is all we need. He is all we need. And Jesus tells us in Revelation 3 that he stands at the door and knocks. I know we have plenty of guests here this morning and I'm really grateful that you are here might not seem like that whilst I'm hiding behind my notes because this is all very scary, but I'm really grateful that you are here. And I have no idea where we are all up to. I have no idea which of us have a faith, which of us are angry at God, which of us feel this is all irrelevant. 
But I can tell you that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is pretty thoroughly and reliably accounted for in all sorts of highly regarded historical artifacts. So my question is to each of us this morning. If there's a man, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who performs hundreds of miracles, whose wisdom grabs the attention of thousands, whose death breaks the heart of a hardened soldier, and whose resurrection is spoken about for millennia, is that kind of Jesus worth listening to? Jesus tells us that he stands at the door and knocks. And those words in Revelation 3 are addressed primarily to believers. And I've got to be honest with you, I'm 22 years a Christian, and I'm not sure I'm any more in love with God's mercy than when I was five. Sometimes we can stop paying attention to how much God's mercy is showered on us, how it is lavished on us, how much he cares, how much he forgives, how he is here with us. And I would suggest that each and every one of us here would benefit from knowing more of God's mercy. So open that marvelous door. There's room for more mercy. Amen. Sing, I'd like you to close your eyes for a minute. Just take a moment. We're going to move to the simple meal that Jesus gave us. Do I need this morning to know more, receive more, experience more of God's mercy? Can I approach through this simple meal of bread and wine to know that this person, Jesus,